Hi there, listener. I'm Nina, and you're listening to Bullshare's co-creation sessions, your resource for all things brand advocacy, current trends, and customer insights. At the co-creation sessions, we're keeping our finger on the pulse of consumer behavior and delivering those insights straight into your ears. So stay tuned for another great session. Hello and welcome to today's session, What Makes Gen Z Tick? Today we're looking at the causes young people care about from the voting booth to the checkout and ultimately deciphering how brands need to act to resonate with young people. From the resurrection of Crocs to the deification of Zendaya to the rejection of stereotypes, Gen Z are trailblazers for the future, for fashion, for culture, for tech and for politics. They're as diverse as they are digitally engaged. They're on track to be the most educated generation and are socially engaged in all things sustainability, inclusivity and culture. At Boldshare, we believe that understanding your consumer empowers you to make more informed business decisions. And when Gen Z are such a huge proportion of the market, it's of the utmost importance to understand them and get to know their needs. I'm so thrilled today to be joined by two absolute Gen Z geniuses, if you will. Um, we have Alex Carnes today with us. Alex is the CEO and founder of the Youth Vote UK and the global head of operations at Nate. With a TED Talk, speeches at universities, a regular feature as a political and news commentator at GB News and experience as a youth ambassador for the UK uh, at the European Union Parliament, Alex is a champion of the interests of young people. Um, Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? your background and your organization yeah thank, thanks Nina, for uh, for having me thanks for that that um, glowing uh, opening <laughs> um yeah good to be here so i'm alex cairns ceo and founder of the youth vote uk an organization that i set up about five years ago now um really because i wanted to engage young people across the country with our kind of democracy and our political system uh, we i kind of found that uh, young people were not engaged in the democratic process. Um, back in 2015, I think it was a real record low of turnout, both in terms of kind of national level and local level with young people voting. In terms of young candidates, until very recently, we only had two MPs under the age of 30. Um, so really, we weren't doing a very, very good job at engaging young people in our kind of political process. Um, so that's why I set up the organisation. We now have around 60 volunteers and partners with about 20 different universities across the country. We focus on uh, being neutral and engaging young people in what's happening in terms of like the political discourse, what political parties stand for, contextualizing and simplifying um, manifestos when there are general elections, and crucially, um, getting young people to stand for election, whether that's locally or, or nationally. So that's um, that's what we do. And I'm yeah, looking forward to uh, being in this uh, webinar today. That's amazing. Thank you. Such a good cause as well. Um, and we're also joined by the founder and CEO of Thread Media, Jenk Oz. So Jenk is a social entrepreneur with three TED Talks and seven model United Nations under his belt. He sits on the Google Gen Z Council, participates in the Oracle and the Microsoft Young Entrepreneur and Influencer programs and focuses his time on social change, youth employment and youth entrepreneurship. Jenk, would you please do the honours of telling the audience a bit about yourself and also about Thread Media? Thank you very much for the very kind introduction. Um, hi everyone, I'm Jen Coz. Uh, I'm gonna have to apologize ahead of time formally for what's happening above my lip over here. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm seeing Top Gun with a couple of friends tomorrow night, so we've all gone for the Miles Teller type mustache. So I'm gonna apologize ahead of time for that. Nice. Um, uh, as I said, I'm Jenk. I'm 17 years old, uh, just, which feels weird saying, since the first, <laughs> is that the first kind of speech I've done when I say I'm 17. Um, <laughs> the founder and CEO of Thread Media, and uh, Thread Media is a social enterprise that focuses on 
publishing, consulting, media, and production, all of which is aimed at Generation Z. We are kind of Generation Z from our founder to our writers, production and graphic design team, our client partners, and, and of course, our readers. Um, our goal mainly is to inform, inspire, and impact the most amount of like-minded people possible to take action locally in order to affect global change at scale. Thread works on three main pillars. The first being Thread Publishing, which is the central tenant of the business. It's a 100% social change focused website, which is thread.com, that's T-H-R-E-D.com, but I'll, I'll put it on the link later, in the chat later. Uh, that's where we kind of house this daily coverage and analysis of all aspects of social change. We have our in-house writers alongside with our global ecosystem of remote writers who are on the ground telling real-time stories and bringing these real-time social issues to light from in, in a way which we think that we probably couldn't based in London. Um, the site is available in 17 different languages and uh, reaches over 100,000 people, uh, young people just even last month, uh, and uh, from over 211 countries and territories, which is very exciting. Nice. Um, the second pillar of Thread is effectively a Thread community, where we have 200,000 followers across all of our social media channels, plus like an amazing group of ambassadors, interns, remote writers, Discord moderators. We call them kind of the extended Thread team, as well as the kind of the vision behind that is the uh, we want to build this change maker network and build up this this group of people of like minded people who can really inspire each other and kind of do the work the Thread is doing within themselves. And uh, finally, the third pillar of Thread is uh, Thread Consulting. So we partner with brands in order to help them better understand uh, Generation Z, because we are kind of so inherently Generation Z, as well as helping them understand social change, because we're 100% social change focused website. Um, we've worked with companies such as Microsoft, Snapchat, um, Google, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, and uh, Epic Games as well. So uh, kind of exciting stuff in that department as well. We've got, uh, yeah. There you go. Amazing. That's Thank so you. interesting. I personally very much enjoyed having a scroll through Thread Media as well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for the introductions, guys. Before we get going, um, I'd like to introduce everyone to Bulb Share and explain a little bit about what we do and how we do it. As with every Bulb Share webinar, our discussion is informed by insights and content direct from our global customer communities. Bulb Share builds always on mobile research communities anywhere in the world and from any customer segment, which provides thousands of real time insights, ideas, and content pieces every day helping the brands and organizations we work with to be guided by the voices of their real customers, to understand their daily lives, to create products, services, content, and campaigns that are more rooted in the interests of the real people they seek to serve. And we do this in our mobile app, which has 41 worldwide communities. Today, though, we'll be using content from our UK uh, public channel respondents, and we have a thousand participants involved in these responses. Um, all right, there is tons to cover, so let's kick off. Um, the first question, really, is who is Gen Z? They're a mystery brands and marketers are trying to unlock. They make up 40% of consumers and 32% of the global population. So it's essential we decipher the puzzle of the post-millennial. Um, well, they were born between 1997 and 2012, making them anywhere between 10 and 25 in age. Uh, but let's not hear it from me. Uh, Jenk, I think it makes sense to kick off today's session by asking you for a bit of an overview of who Gen Z is. Well, uh, yeah, I think the things you said firstly were correct. We have kind of great influence in the consumer market. But I think it's important to note, firstly, before we kick off, is that Generation Z have been shaped by four main things. Um, we've been shaped by smartphones, 
a prolonged financial crisis, which either we experienced or our parents very vividly did when we were alive, uh, a decade of social activism, and now a global viral pandemic. So immediately with that kickoff, it really doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a great generation. It doesn't seem like a great start for our generation. Um, it's also important to know that we're by no means a monolith, but we're kind of there are kind of five unique cohorts within Generation Z, but we do kind of share a lot of these traits in common. We're all researchers and fact checkers. With we having grown up with Google at our fingertips, why wouldn't you fact check anything or kind of research everything you can? Um, we're competitive, but not afraid of failure. We're financially conservative and uh, focused on the value and kind of we understand our fiscal options much more. We're the first generation who would buy one T-shirt for £60 because as opposed to buying 10 T-shirts for £6 because we understand the concept of reselling and we understand the monetary value to things. Um, one thing I like to I hear often is that we have a very short attention span, an attention span of eight seconds, which um, I think is less of an attention span of eight seconds, but more a very acute filtering system. If we will decide within eight seconds whether we want to concentrate on what you have to say. And yeah. past that point, we could be either concentrating for hours on end or or nothing at all. So uh, I want to kind of tweak that attention span to actually not put us in such a bad light. Um, Generation Z, interestingly, are much less focused on this work-life balance than millennials and much more focused on working for a company who shares our strong moral compass. And this can be something we refer to again later, I think. But this idea of Generation Z wanting to kind of work with where what they feel is right. And uh, the hours we work aren't as much of a priority, provided that we feel aligned, kind of valued and fulfilled and satisfied with what we're doing. Um, I think some of the things that they kind of more about the lifestyle of Generation Z is that we describe ourselves as having kind of an undefined identity. We don't want people to label us. We want it's very important for Generation Z that we want that to be our own process to determine our own identity over time. And we experiment with different ways of kind of being ourselves, reshaping our individuality over time. But we're, we're in essence kind of like an identity nomad in the sense that you jump from identity into identity until you really find one that is yourself in a sense. Um, now, this may surprise you, definitely surprise me, but our levels of alcohol, meat, car, travel purchases are all declining from their peace quite rapidly. And uh, amazingly now, only half of US teenagers even drive. And now that in itself is a huge change because previously on your 16th or 17th birthday, whatever it is, you'd be kind of straight into the uh, straight in with your kind of provisional license trying to get your driving test. But um, that's that's just not the case anymore. We're the first generation where a majority has some kind of meat restriction in their diet, whether it be a flexitarian, pescatarian, vegetarian or kind of full on vegan. But a majority now kind of eat meat and animal products, but sparingly, because we really believe that every, it's, it's a very every little helps kind of scenario. A third of people say the word vegan on products makes them more appealing. And actually, as a generation, we consume 550% more non-dairy milk than millennials did. We listen to much more international music and genreless music. I mean, Spotify was kind of saw that by launching into 85 more countries following a very similar model to Netflix did. And um, also that kind of following that, it was no surprise to learn that 40% of us don't consider ourselves to be a citizen of our own country, but much more kind of citizen of the earth, almost, a kind of citizen of the world. We're very much the first generation that doesn't want to move to the suburbs, and our, our default living arrangement, pardon me, is living with our parents. Now that, again, to be honest, makes sense given how young we are right now, but even that process is slowing down for Generation Z, and people aren't even thinking about moving out just yet. 
In fact, just under 70% of adult Generation Zs are still living with their parents or relatives. But once they move out, the likelihood that they'll rent for a much longer time is they look to live in cities where it's much more costly, but closer to hybrid work. So we kind of, we're seeing that that shift in the rental cycle uh, and the kind of urban to uh, urban to rural cycle as well. One major drawback there of Generation Z is that we find ourselves, and this is not new information to anyone, being the loneliest generation to date. The largest number of Generation Zers are experiencing poor mental health and the kind of and uh, that is partially but not entirely attributable to this rise in self-awareness and the willingness to speak out. Um, one kind of important thing which I want to kind of cover is people who are trying to sell to Generation Z, because I appreciate that there could be quite a lot of people in the audience there. It's really important to understand where your customer is going to be located. Um, out of the 2.5 kind of billion Generation Zers, 90% of them live in emerging and developing markets. 44% live in just five countries alone. That's just under half Generation Z live in India, China, Nigeria, Indonesia, and the US. So if you're only catering to the US, which a lot of companies do, you're missing out on a vast, vast majority of Generation Zers. Other countries to watch out for are Mexico, Philippines, and Thailand, because it's important to see that you want to target Generation Z countries where they have rapid rates of education and kind of development, uh, high connectivity improvement, uh, and, uh, kind of, and kind of connectivity understanding and technological understanding. Um, for example, uh, in the US, 22% of Generation Z have at least one immigrant parent. So it's proving a very big kind of these these out of the US, out of the UK cultures are massively permeating the US and the UK because having an immigrant parent, it decides where you go on holiday, the foods you eat, the music you listen to, the cultures you align yourself with, even the religion that you kind of participate with or have a faith in. It's all determined massively by your parents, especially if you have an immigrant parent. So why have we become important to brands lately? Well, as you said, um, Generation Z is 40% of the global consumers and have $7 trillion of hard income plus 14 times that when combined with your soft influencing spend. So it comes out to about kind of, we effectively we're the most financial generation in the world, which I guess is a little pat on, pat on the back to myself. <laughs> um, our income is set to increase by 140% over the next five years, reaching $33 trillion by 2030, having already overtaken millennials by 2027. Um, the largest generation Z markets, just for you guys, are kind of the uh, the US and China, then quickly followed by India, Japan, and Germany, and of course the UK. The uh, look, the growing consumer power of Generation Z is going to be even more powerful, taking into account this great wealth transfer that's happening right now during the generations. The US baby boomer and silent generation households are sitting on $78 trillion worth of wealth today, and it's all going to make its way back to Generation Z. So uh, effectively buckle up, because Generation Z is about to become a lot more financially influential. That's really interesting and so thorough. Thank you so much. I feel, I feel like I went, to, I looked down at the time and I thought, oh, crikey, I've got No, not at all. It's exactly what I was looking for. And it's it's really interesting some of the points you made. Firstly, about um, the mental health being the loneliest generation. We'll come back to that later. And also you mentioned about how they're choosing uh, work that reflects their values as well. And that, again, is something we'll look at because uh, we'll look quite a lot about how uh, Gen Z choose brands to consume based on their values but it's really interesting the shift now as well that um your career has to reflect your values too mm. um so the next question really is where can they be found so from the local coffee shop to the university library to social media where is gen z 
Um, well, let's start with social media. As you very well put, Jenk, um, Gen Zers are digital natives. They're born into a time where they've never really been without tech and the internet. So you can guarantee they've been brought up on quite a digital diet. Um, and TikTok and Instagram are the big Gen Z magnets, according to our survey. Uh, when asked to select their one favourite social media platform, 32% said Instagram, 25% said TikTok, and 18% said Twitter. Um, 77% follow influencers, which some mentioning Emma Chamberlain, Addison Ray, Brett Rock, Mark Guy, Mr. Beast. In fact, when asked if they consider becoming an influencer themselves, 53% said, yeah, they'd consider it. Um, moreover, 66% have brought a product via social media. So they're very much engaged in social commerce as well. Um, so this is one for both of you, really. What brands are using social media effectively to resonate with younger audience? Uh, who's getting it right? Oh, I'm going to hand it straight over to Alex because I, I feel like I'll, I'll, I'll add anything if I need to, but I definitely have to pass on over. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one because I think we're, we're living through a generation where a lot of people want to aspire to be an influencer. You know, you look at like shows like Love Island, which I can be honest, I'm going to get it out early. I do watch it. Um, I would say like I watch it every single year, but I think we're going through a period where our generation has kind of grown up with that Love Island generation, that reality TV generation, the kind of Geordie Shaw made in Chelsea, only way ethics era. And that means that lots of people will kind of aspire to be like influencers. And I think what big brands have realized is actually they need to tap into that. And you see lots of brands that want to kind of use influencers. But I also think going away from the influencer side, I think some brands have been extremely clever about what they've done. So for example, McDonald's, McDonald's have been very smart about how the, they've used a popular board game with our generation, Monopoly, in ensuring that they can retain that kind of young customer base, both from like a, this generation's perspective and going forward into their life. So, you know, giving them like a reward if they get like a, a set or, you know, wh whatever kind of rewards come on the back of their kind of Monopoly figures. Very, very clever. And, and we haven't necessarily seen any of the other like food brands be able to do anything as successful. Of course, some of them have tried, but I think that's been very, very smart. Another one to mention here is Gymshark. I think Gymshark have been very, very successful in using kind of modern day influences that, that go to the gym or into their fitness um, and have been able to kind of tap into that kind of market that is really health conscious, um, you know, but there are, of course, there are positive and negative sides to this, but focusing on the positive sides, of course, you know, being fit and going to the gym and, and focusing on, on healthy, on healthy living. Another brand that's done particularly well is Deliciously Ella. I think that's also tapped into a very, very kind of uh, specific market, especially with, with kind of young females that are really um, health conscious. Um, and I think they've been very, very smart about both the product range and, and the kind of branding behind um, their, their products. So I think there's a few to mention there, but I think going forward, as, as kind of Yang was talking about, um, Gen Z are, are the kind of future uh, mortgage buyers and the future kind of CEOs of companies. They're the kind of future kind of politicians of the world. And, and that brings kind of wealth and experience with that. So I think brands have been very, very clever about ensuring that they kind of tailor their branding, their messaging, their comms and their kind of product offering to ensure that Gen Z become early kind of uh, product adopters and then kind of going forward in their life they kind of had it over to their kids and, and so forth so there's a few brands to, to mention there so yeah that's really interesting as well because um a bit later we'll talk about how gen z um like being part of the community and 
traditional transactional relationships between brands, just that sort of buying, selling uh, relationship has shifted to a more of a community-based model. So, uh, yeah, some really interesting examples there. Um, and Alex, um, how about the Youth Vote UK? How are you using tactics to resonate with young audiences, be it through social media or otherwise? Oops, sorry, I was on mute there. Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting one for us because actually what, what we're trying to do is, is slightly different and we have to be really clever here because um, I think if I'm honest, when it comes to like kind of political discussions, a lot of young people do tend to switch off. And I think Yang Bank read a really interesting um, observation about the kind of attention span of young people being kind of in that eight to 10 second ballpark, which which is a real issue, right? Because you can't necessarily get across political kind of messages about why voting is important, what's happening at kind of local versus national level. In 10 seconds, it's virtually impossible. So we have to be very smart about not necessarily just using social media, but but using other kind of platforms and kind of uh, tools to our disposal. So, of course, we use social media in the normal ways, whether it's um, polls. Polls are very effective. So we're, we're constantly asking young people, uh, you know, what your opinions are of, of Boris Johnson. I'm sure you can conclude what the, what the results are there and what the results would be, whether there would be an election tomorrow. Who would they vote for? Would they stand for election? Do they trust politicians? So polls are probably the main tool we use when it comes to social media, because unfortunately, when it comes to other things like blog posts, uh, videos that kind of are longer than 20 seconds, we don't tend to get the engagement level we need. So the polls are the main pieces of work we do. And then we have a vast ambassador network across universities and kind of further education colleges across the country where we run kind of sessions that we invite guest speakers. And that tends to be quite, quite good engagement because we tend to see young people that are kind of considering why politics is important. Um, and what we try and do is we try to get a mixture of actual like politicians and like kind of influences in general um, and I think you know that that tends to work quite well but I think yeah social media and politics is is, is an interesting one because um, it's very difficult to kind of penetrate that market uh, obviously with other brands that I was talking about far more easier because obviously young people are interested in in food that aren't interested in clothing that aren't interested in healthy eating um, etc but when it comes to politics less so um, so I think as as we see the kind of political trend changing. We are seeing more politicians joining TikTok. You are seeing more politicians trying to tap into social media. Um, but unfortunately, the things that tend to get the most engagement are clips of um, politicians being mocked, unfortunately. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because I think humor is important. However, I do think it's important we get to a point where we can try and educate young people on social media as opposed to just having kind of um, humorous content, which is how people know about a speech that the one of the politicians given, for example, there's a famous speech that Diane, not speech, a kind of recording of Diane Abbott uh, miscalculating how much it would cost to, to um, police uh, the Met, for example. And I think, again, a lot of young people saw that circulating. So there are ways that we can educate young people what's happening in politics, but at the moment it's done in a humorous way. We need to kind of shift to, to more of a serious conversation. But 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 yeah, there's a few, few tools that we use really interesting and again linking back to that sort of short attention span or, or as you say Jake not short attention span but sort of a selective attention span uh, so how to engage with people that you know there's a real challenge there it's an obstacle isn't it and Jake other than social media where can we find Gen Z are they doing internships are they at school are they still going to university uh um I think you can find Generation Z in quite a few different places uh but 
what is, what's actually more important to talk about is that it's a very different couple of places than just three years ago. I think the first place where you're going to find a lot of Generation Z, and this is no surprise to anyone, is going to be social media. Even before the pandemic, Generation Z was was experimenting with these kind of smaller, interest-led online destinations like IRL. And then it surged among these younger generations during the pandemic. We started leaving these, uh, and like this is kind of slightly counteracting what you kind of the the post about the TikTok and Instagram we said earlier. But Generation Z started to leave leave these kind of public-facing social media platforms and migrating more towards these intimate platforms where they want to private message each other and connect to these select micro communities and participate in shared experiences with like-minded individuals. Um, uh, Generation Z call them kind of these digital campfires, and uh, they've become a defining mainstay for generation. Pardon me for Generation Z, looking to connect and share culture-shifting movements. It's much more of a kind of high, much more high frequency, much more high engagement interactions. The kind of the three categories of these digital campfires are the messaging ones, uh, WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, uh, Text Rex. I think is one called. Um, then you have these community-based ones, which are like uh, Slack, Discord, IRL, Geneva, Reddit, Depop, even to an extent, Facebook groups. Then you have this final group, which is the experimental campfires, which is the kind of the Fortnites and the Robloxes. And um, so kind of that's where that's one place where you can find Generation Z. I think the second theme is kind of around these unprecedented education and employment challenges facing Generation Z. And um, I think what's important to talk about, and um, you might have heard me rant about this before, but it's really, really important that, look, entire industries are on track for AI and automation by 2030. Over 800 million jobs globally are gonna be lost. And that is just not a fact lost on Generation Z. So the gig workforce, and this kind of is where I'm leading back to where we can find Generation Z, the gig workforce is growing at three times faster than the rate of the traditional workforce. And statistics show that 50% of the developed world is going to be working in gig by 2027. So that puts a huge emphasis on self-employment and demand-based work. And that's where we're going to find Generation Z. And that's very, very different to how it was just three years ago. It's important to know the generation, this is not just about the kind of the benefits that we, it's not just the benefits that we lose because it's also the risk that we take on having not been trained the way that we were trained three years ago for the employment system. We're being trained, we need to have a completely different training to be able to survive and thrive in the hustle necessary for this kind of new new job employment environment. Um, I think one of the second points I want to make just now, kind of now I'm on that topic, is 85% of the jobs needed for 2030's economy haven't been created in scale yet. And this generate this current generation of students need to be the ones to build the companies and offer the services needed for that new economy. It's not the people who are coming in five years from now because it'll be too late. And it's not the people who've already left because they can't. It's it's our generation now who need to develop and build and understand where we're going as an economy and as kind of a world almost in order to build the companies and forge the structures and kind of place the foundations necessary for us to succeed. Yeah, so, it's, it's, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I saw... No, I was just going to say, yeah, sorry, after you, after you. I was just say, I saw on Thread Media that uh, so many uh, of Gen Z are becoming entrepreneurs and starting companies, some before they've left school as well. But yeah, please do carry on, yeah. No, like massively, Generation Z, uh, something like 75% of Generation Z want to start a company and 15% of Generation Z want to do it before they've left school, mm -hmm. which makes us an incredibly entrepreneurial generation, which I think is incredible. 
But so, so kind of back to the question, where are Generation Z spending their time learning all of this? Because we just assessed that it's not in private education. Well, if you want to find Generation Z, you find them on the internet. There's, the democratization of education is just using your laptop. It's, it's attending conferences like this. It's upskilling and repotting your skills, and it's never been made easier, cheaper, or more convenient. You have digital learning destinations like, I mean, YouTube. YouTube is the place where I, I think I learn the most outside of my outside of the classroom. How-to videos on YouTube, whether it be how to kind of make a pot from clay or how to kind of how to build a website or how to write kind of a house track on Logic Pro. Like anything you can learn on YouTube, provided that you have the internet. Uh, further than YouTube, you have Skillshare, Masterclass, Coursera, Udemy, LinkedIn Learning. There's countless amount of platforms where Generation Z are being found right now, trying to make up for the fact that they're not being educated properly for the world that they're going into. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there, there's, there you go. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's interesting you talk about um, different types of social media as well and sort of community-based uh, social media. I think we've seen like the rise of Twitch and like you said, Reddit as well. They're really, really popular at the minute. Um, yeah. But talking of social media, um, there's an interesting cross-section when it comes to social media between social and political media, which has become known as clicktivism. Um, and we asked the community if they had to pick just one form of activism, what it would be. And the majority said signing online petitions or doing social media activism uh, rather than, say, writing to their MP. Um, and 77% voted to say they engage in social media activism, followed by 57% signing petitions and then 30% protesting in person. Um, so, Jake, I know you've done a talk about clicktivism. Why is it that Gen Z are so into it? And do you think it has a, a real tangible impact? And I'll come to Alex on this afterwards as well. You've, I must say, I apologise to everyone ahead of time. You've really teed me up here for quite the rant, so I'll try and keep it on the <laughs> okay. keep it on the on the low. But um, um, I think look, the first thing I want to say is that to those of you who aren't familiar with clicktivism, it's effectively the term used to describe any form of activism, social activism, but done behind a phone screen or a laptop, basically online. Hence, click. So uh, effectively, examples are things like social change hashtags or viral videos or Snapchat filters or online petitions. These are already a staple of how Generation Z bring about change. But you're right to ask, does it have an impact? Because it could see, you'd argue that it doesn't. Well, actually, there's mounting evidence to suggest that online activism is far more effective than many may assume. Research over the last 10 years has shown that clicktivism can be a powerful tool, especially to spread these little-known ideas and publicize non-mainstream causes that don't get the attention they might not necessarily deserve. We all realize that one tweet or one post isn't going to change the world. That's not new information. But it can, millions of them will spread beliefs that can. And amazing things have happened when these collective, unified digital efforts have emerged. We've seen policies change, we've seen cultures turn, we've seen powerful end up in prison, we've seen governments even fall. If we look back to before the internet, before clicktivism, movements were far slower to grow and took far longer. Back then, it was difficult to recruit and maintain and retain passionate people about a single cause. Whereas today, the world of digital activism is so broad, outreaching and immediate that what's astonishing is how many movements have been able to flourish in such a short amount of time because of how outspread the internet allows them to be. Saudi women fought for their right to drive cars using social media. Young people took a stand on period poverty and had taxes removed using social media. And, um, and kind of native people were able to kind of uh, forage their rights through uh, through 
are kind of culturally kind of pressuring websites. So, look, there's some very obvious benefits. There's scale, speed, efficiency, the ability to reach across borders and raise awareness and funds, as well as the fact that online activism is also far more accessible. Those with disabilities or those who lived out of major countries or in kind of rural areas were historically excluded from the physical protests, and those in rural areas were very, very rarely able to make themselves heard. But now everyone's on the equal playing field, which means, again, that more causes get heard and more causes can be listened to. Now, the downside of that, and this is not new information to anyone, is that these online movements burn out faster than campaigns that spend months or even years forging in-person connections. And there's rarely a well-oiled permanent organization to follow up on the demands of the collectivism in the first place. So, admittedly, it's difficult to argue that being online hasn't had an impact on the number of people willing to show up for a cause, but I can also see the arguments towards it being less effective, but I'd argue that it's far more effective. Interesting. And um, bringing it back to brands as well. So I suppose there's an element of collectivism that is holding brands accountable for things like greenwashing or inauthenticity. Um, would you say there are any examples of when Gen Z collectivism has achieved that or changed the way a brand behaves? Well, yeah, I think there's some there's some super high profile examples like the, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign against pro, uh, against Facebook when they when kind of more than thousands of brands, including Starbucks, Coca-Cola, took a stronger stand against uh, against hate speech. But I think my my favorite kind of example, actually, is a, uh, a 14 year old girl called Lucy Gavinor uh, a while ago, a petition Tesco to stop selling eggs from caged hens, which at the time made up just under 50 percent of them. Uh, and with enough kind of social media shares and signatures and signed, Tesco announced that they would kind of completely phase out uh, eggs from caged hens by 2025. And I think it's a great example of a 14 year old who's able to make that much difference like everyone can. It's amazing. Yeah. And Alex, what do you think where you stand on this? Can online activism uh, make real change? I think I think it's an interesting one because I think from a brand's perspective, yes, um, brands are very, very aware of what's happening in the kind of social media discourse. Um, as we talked about earlier, like Gen Z are a kind of critical demographic for them. Um, and given the way that social media can not just influence Gen Z, but actually can influence pretty much any demographic, um, they're very, very aware of kind of um, any kind of petitions or any kind of negativity towards their brand. So, of course, it can influence brands. In the UK, kind of political decisions, not as much, unfortunately. There are obviously exceptions where a huge amount of kind of social pressure has uh, particularly changed the policy. But given the kind of state of play at the moment, we have a Conservative government, it's far more difficult for kind of clicktivism to change, um, like, government policy um and and that's the reality of kind of social media kind of discourse versus kind of right-wing kind of political discourse so there are differences here i think brands are far more um, easier to persuade than kind of government ministers there are going to be exceptions but i think it's important that people understand that um for example like extinction rebellion very very effective at both bringing in lots of young people to protests and having lots of kind of political pressure but it doesn't necessarily change things um, uh, quickly. Um, and that's because government policy is complicated. Um, and, and unfortunately, the key demographic for, you know, government ministers isn't necessarily Gen Z. And that's something, obviously, we're trying to change because more young people go to the ballot box. They probably would listen to kind of clicktivism more. But unfortunately, at the moment, in, in our political system, 
doesn't make as much impact as it should do. So um, we'll have to see going forward whether we can get young people to turn out elections. And, and uh, trust me, there'll be a positive correlation between the number of young people that vote and how kind of social pressure can change government policy for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so what keeps Gen Z awake at night? What are the issues facing them? Um, well, we asked our Gen Z community what the biggest threats to the world are. 82% said climate change, followed by 45% saying nuclear weapons and war. Um, so keep that stat about climate change in mind as we go on to talk about Gen Z's expectations of brands as well. Um, and 63% remain optimistic and hopeful for the future, whilst 47% remain more nihilistic. Um, Gen Z, as you said earlier, Jen, are growing up at a time of global pandemic. They're living in a cost of living crisis, time of unrest, war, political polarisation. Um, and I know Thread Media, for instance, has done a piece on why Gen Z are adopting nihilism. Um, but regardless of optimism, pessimism, nihilism, 40% have been to a protest. So they clearly have this drive for change. Um, and as we talked about, they're very engaged online as well with that. Um, and when asked to pick the causes that mattered most to them, uh, mental health was an astounding winner with 80% of our uh, community voting for mental health and followed by financial fairness at 57%, racial diversity 43%, feminism at 33%, sustainability at 30% and so on. Um, so remember those because we'll talk later about uh, the fact Jen said not only wants but expect brands to be engaged in social justice and uh, these cause causes will certainly be relevant there as well, you know awareness of mental health and sustainability. So um, are there any causes that really stand out to either of you when it comes to Gen Z and young people and their interests? I'm happy to, I'm happy to let Alex go first. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I think it, 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 I'm not surprised that some of the stats that, that, that you just read out, I mean, uh, I mean climate change is an obvious one, um, you know, the, the concern from young people is, you know, that we're really going to inherit some of the kind of problems around um, even, you know, the global temperature going up by, you know, one degree, like it's going to cause massive issues, um, you know, uh, a ton of kind of pressure around that. So I'm not surprised, obviously, mental health, mm. big, big campaigns from universities that now is getting more traction around, you know, young people's suicide, um, Obviously, given the pandemic has caused a lot of pressure on young people's mental health, given the uncertainty about what the jobs market is going to look like, you know, Yang made a really, really good point about the kind of future kind of jobs economy in this country around the fact that, you know, lots of individuals are going to really need to upskill and, and be looking at kind of jobs in the tech sector as opposed to, you know, historically working in, say, you know, retail or some of the other sectors that are particularly more manual probably in the next 10 years some of those roles are going to be replaced by technology so i think you know there's a lot of kind of topics that again doesn't surprise me um, going forward i think it's going to be interesting because we're probably going to see a shift as we come out of that pandemic away from potentially job insecurity to things like mental health um, and climate change continuing that they, they were big topics probably before the pandemic and have just become even more bigger topics going forward so yeah we'll, we'll see that trend i think continue definitely i think um a bit of a big question here how do we integrate these causes these attitudes into branding and marketing as well so for instance, if we're talking about this sort of sense of nihilism, is this something brands should consider when communicating with Gen Z and, you know, that this passion about climate change, should that be at the forefront of comms? Well, I think if I, I might kind of quickly go kind of cap over what Alex said about the last question. I'll kind of, of run into both because they're kind of limited, kind of connected in that sense. 
I think generally said the things I'm most concerned about when it comes to is social justice and climate change. I think activism really forms this part of Generation Z's identity, almost. Over 10% of Generation Z surveyed claim that activism was their priority over all other options, which uh, 10% doesn't seem like a huge amount. But when you realise that the other options were things like family, love and career, you realise that actually activism is a really big part of a lot of our lives. Um, activism is going to influence Generation Z's decisions across sectors from the consumption of goods to education, work choices and financial investments. But more importantly, a two-thirds of Generation Z believe that brands, not governments, have the power to drive change. So in, in, developed, in developed democracies, that has more to do with the speed and efficiency and transparency of brands rather than the lack of, kind of, of those qualities within a government. But it's important to, uh, to keep in mind that 71% of Generation Z say that being politically and socially engaged is important for a company's corporate identity. And Generation Z view corporate social responsibility as a company's operating system. And it shouldn't just be a, a marketing strategy or a plug-in or a seasonal add-on. But Generation Z really believe that what a company stands for should be at the, the, the structure, the foundation of everything that they do. So that's kind of what we care about. Moving on to kind of how we should integrate these causes into their marketing and branding and whatnot. Um, I, look, I think for brands, the decision to produce and how to produce is going to have the biggest impact for Generation Z consumers. I think one person's decision to start recycling has very, very little, almost negligible impact on the rest of the world. Whereas Coke making a decision to stop producing 500 milliliter bottles because they make one liter and they make 330 milliliter cans, that is a lot, a lot of plastic that's being saved. It's not about recycling the plastic, it's about not making the plastic in the first place. Even when it is recycled, it's recycled two to three times and only 9% of the items even are recycled. And when they are, it's only two to three times. So this idea of kind of recycling being the kind of the godsend to the climate, it's, it's it cannot be harsh, but it's just simply not the case. But what's going to really make a difference is don't make us recycle by not making the things that we need to recycle. Like, I, I mean, I mean, you saw me drink out my Pepsi. This was from like, this is about a month ago. I've been using the same kind of old Pepsi can, but... The, like the fact that you don't need to make this is, is my exact point. It's not a matter of recycling or encouraging us how to dispose of it. It's don't make it because one person is going to dispose one bottle at a time, whereas Coke cannot make millions, if not billions, of bottles at a time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's more of a corporate responsibility rather than individual responsibility to sort of um, have that sustainable impact. And also, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. I was just going to say that with a kind of with the world of these. The fewer corporate benefits, one of the biggest challenges brands are going to face is demonstrating the purpose and that value creation for these non-shareholder stakeholders, like employees, consultants, basically, these kind of these local communities where they're stakeholders, but they're not shareholders. They're not kind of they're not gaining that benefit. So this is going to require a fundamentally different government's philosophy, like becoming a B Corp. For, for which are kind of these for-profit companies that meet the highest standards of verified social and environmental performances. Mm -hmm. There are like 4,000, over 4,000 certified B Corps across 70 countries. And like, just, just kind of, because they're fun examples, Unilever is one, The Body Shop, uh, All Birds, uh, and uh, Patagonia, I think is one as well. So there's, there's, there's big ones, but I think that's how a company is going to integrate their morals into their actions.
Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that and also that it shouldn't just be like an add-on or a marketing campaign. It has to be at the heart of operations as well because I think it's interesting that we're talking about this during Pride Month as well and we'll see lots of uh, brands using something that Gen Z and many others care about very deeply as a way of sort of resonating with them. But it's really important as well to not do that in any sort of superficial way because I think Gen Z are very eagle-eyed to spot uh, when something is purely for marketing. So don't be exploitative of your affiliation with different causes. Uh, do it with genuine interest and back up your words of action. And uh, yeah, I think there's, there's lots more to talk on that. But I think we'll move on to the next bit, which is um, that despite being so socially engaged, as we've discussed, um, young people do have the lowest voting turnout. They don't outvote their elders anywhere in the world. So we're seeing a real paradox of uh, Gen Z being very engaged in brands that are activists, uh, very tuned in online about activism, but perhaps not so engaged in the voting booths. So in our uh, community, 72% say they vote, but 62% said they've not voted in the past. Um, and 79% said they think 18 is a good age to vote. However, they said, uh, sorry, 52% said yes, the voting age could be lowered. Um, furthermore, 62% said not enough young people vote and a massive 90% said political outcomes would be different if more young people did vote. Um, is that something you agree with, Alex? Would we be seeing different results if more young people were voting? Absolutely, we would be because um, the government policy is very much shaped on the basis that the kind of core people that vote tend to be uh, middle-aged adults, pensioners, and kind of individuals that are like kind of well into their, to their career. And the reality is young people are very, very good at creating social media campaigns, starting hashtags, going to go to protests. But when it comes to voting, um, even though we've seen an, a drastic improvement in the last two general elections, 2017, 2019, um, it's still not high enough. Now, there are a range of reasons why we don't see enough young people voting. Just to list a couple of them. Firstly, if, if a young person doesn't grow up in a political household, they are far less likely to vote. And unfortunately, that kind of grows into their kind of view on the world. If their parents intend to vote, they would think it's not really a use of, of their time. The education system, I think, is, is broken. You know, as much as I, I, I think it was it was useful to teach us about drugs and sex education and about love crime, that's fine. But the reality is, I think we should have also been taught and PSHE about, you know, the importance of um, the political kind of uh, situation of the country, how the politics worked, how democracy worked. And, and had the education system been been changed, I think a lot more of my peers would have realised actually voting is, is far more important. And I think young people have to understand that, of course, from a brand's perspective, they can make change. But in terms of the actual political system that we have in this country, in terms of the Houses of Parliament and, you know, writing to your MP and trying to change government policy by social pressure, what would help is more young people, when it comes to elections, voting for parties that they feel represent them. And a lot of young people are asked to say, who would you vote for? All of them have an answer, but making sure they actually turn up on the day and do it. And you know, a lot of young people say that they forget or they don't think that their vote would make a change. For example, we have a first part of the post. A system where obviously they know that the most number of votes in that particular area uh, ensures that the MP wins, but obviously it's not a majority. So, for example, there are around 30% of uh, constituencies around the country that only uh, 
have an MP that won around a third of the, the vote in their areas. So and all the young people hate that system. They think it's broken. But instead of complaining about the system, what we're trying to do, what my organisation is trying to do, is just try and actually just encourage young people to vote. Because what we saw in 2017, for example, was... Labour and, and Corbyn strategies were very, very effective at targeting what we call university seats, where there was around a third of the registered voters that, if all of them voted, could swing, say, the seat from a Conservative to a Labour or from a Green to a Lib Dem, etc. And we saw around 25 to 30 seats change had in university towns. So fundamentally, it can change elections and therefore change government policy, but young people have to have to vote it's it, it, you know it sounds obvious but but it really is critical no you're, you're right and interestingly 59% said we need more education on voting uh, with 55% saying specifically more education on how to register to vote um, and the biggest source of information for young people uh, was online news at 66% followed very closely by social media at 63% and then we get parents newspapers party leaflets and at the end it's actually schools and universities so it's really interesting you uh, mentioned that um, and when it comes to politics more generally, Gen Z are feeling frustrated, uh, over half feel angry, dissatisfied or apathetic. Um, and perhaps there's something to be said as well. I think, Jake, you actually mentioned this earlier um, about sort of lack of trust um, in politics. And Alex, maybe you said this as well, but in politics and politicians from young people feeling this sort of disconnection, um, which has really facilitated uh, a move towards brands stepping into that uh, social responsibility space and the activism space. Um, and we've seen our community say they want more information on voting and polit politics. And we've also seen that they get it from social media. So uh, we're really seeing brands step into uh, that sort of educational and political space like never before. Um, so the final topic for today is how do uh, Gen Z shops so purpose before profit is the Gen Z mantra, belief before business, community and social interest before gain. 65% said they're more likely to spend their money on brands that align with their values, which I think we touched on earlier as well with careers too. Um, and they most want brands to care about things like sustainability and diversity. If we think back to those earlier conversations about uh, mental health, climate change, and inclusivity, that's that's all the case as well. So talking of diversity, 67% witnessed improvements from brands when it comes to inclusion, which is great. Um, and 79% of our Gen Z community said that brands should get involved in these conversations in order to not just stay relevant, but to have a social impact um, so they do think it's the brand space to be involved and um, we also see that Jen said don't just want transactional sort of buying selling relationships white bear said that remember that Jen said don't just want to buy your brand they want to feel part of your brand tribe um, and 78% said they feel closer to brands when they get involved in brand decisions um, and 80% of our Gen Z community said they want to feel part of something bigger so, Jenk, are we seeing um, a new approach to shopping that is more about voting with your money? So is Gen Z more conscious about consumerism? Sorry, I'm back. I <laughs> it's all right. Um, sorry, you, you want to rephrase the question very quickly. Of course, yeah. So are we seeing a new approach to shopping? It's more about sort of voting with your money. Um, and is Gen Z more conscious about consumerism? Yeah. Um, I think, look, to begin with, all major global events have a way of shaping, it's what, they have a way of shaping the kind of the spending habits of the generation that, that come of age during that global event. The evidence is clear 
that the generation coming about during coronavirus uh, will be to Generation Z, what the Great Recession that began in 2008 was to millennials. It's a reset and a recalibration of sorts. So we've learned to do less, spend less and waste less. And this time, technology has given young people an unprecedented degree of connectivity among themselves and with the rest of the population who've experienced the same event. Now, that has allowed generational seismic shifts within our generation, like sustainability. And uh, kind of it's allowed us to systemically change the way that we kind of speak to our, our system almost. And that conversation is happening at an unprecedented speed. I think there are three hugely transformational forces that are emerging and are, are challenging the system. The first being the fact that consumption is being redefined. It's, we're now moving from possession towards access. We are much more risk averse, I said, in a sustainably minded cohort, therefore a more pragmatic generation of consumers. So Generation Z analyzed not only what they buy, but also part of that is the act of buying it or consuming it. Therefore, the consumption itself has also gained this new meaning. That for Generation Z, consumption means having access to products or services, not necessarily owning them. It's access as opposed to owning. Access becomes the new form of consumption. Unlimited access to goods and services like car riding services or desk sharing, video streaming, subscriptions creates value for Generation Z. So what ends up happening is products become services and services connect consumers. So why is this important Generation Z? Well, because less is more when it comes to sustainability. And the Generation Z is a very big fan of why buy when you can rent and share. Why buy one car which can only be bought once when you can rent one car for a thousand different people, for a thousand different journeys. The second transformational force is this theme of singularity, meaning that consumption is an expression, which is, I think was what we were leading to earlier. Consumption is an expression of, the, of one's individual identity. And at the core of Generation Z is this idea of manifesting individual identity. Consumption there before, therefore becomes a means of self-expression as opposed to just buying or wearing brands that fit in with the norms of a particular group. So this is why small brand consumerism and this customization is on the rise because people want to look unique, not just the same as everyone else. 10, 20 years ago, everyone would be listening to the same music, wearing the same clothes, doing the same activities after school, whereas that's just not the case anymore. Now, finally, the third transformational theme that I want to talk about is this idea of consumption anchored on ethics and sustainability. And it kind of ties into what I just said in the sense that in a transparent world, younger consumers don't distinguish between the ethics of a brand, the company that owns it, its network of partners and suppliers. So ideals and morals and values and ethics have to permeate the whole stakeholder system. And we're seeing companies really not get that right because they're receiving money from someone who doesn't align with them, who doesn't align with the values that they align themselves with. And companies are kind of feeling the wrath of that almost. 70% of people say that they influence their family decisions on cars, furniture, household goods, uh, kind of technology, as well as food and drink and where you go on holiday, which means that clearly that the influence that we have and the way that we spend isn't just the way that we spend, but it, it influences the way that our parents spend or the gifts that our grandparents buy for us. So actually, this influence that I'm talking about isn't necessarily just the music we buy or the clothes that we buy it's the clothes that it's the the houses that we live in the cars that we buy the the the, the companies that as a family we allow ourselves to associate with so um it, look covid as okay as a kind of final point 
The COVID lockdown has meant that there's been an accelerated transfer of Generation Z preferences to other generations because we've all been living under the same roof in the same way that kind of when you're kind of all put under the same roof together as a family, the values get shared between the family a lot more than they used to. So uh, that kind of emphasizes that point I made about um, generations, other generations being influenced by Generation Z. Yeah, that's really, really interesting because um, we've also witnessed that uh, Gen Z appreciate um, customer advocacy and peer-to-peer marketing. So rather than just being sold something, um, having authentic recommendations from friends and family and and the fact that they're doing that as well to their family and that they're (coughs) having an impact on other generations and their network um it's really powerful for marketing as well really um i also really like what you said about um you know that shift from ownership to access like you said earlier um fewer gen z are going to be owning cars and um, I think that we can attribute that to this sort of sharing um, and renting uh, economy in Uber. And um, so, yeah, it was some really interesting stuff there. And I think it's also worth mentioning that Gen Z are rather immune to traditional marketing strategies. They don't want to be sold to, as we said. So 99% of Gen Zers skip ads when given the opportunity, according to our survey. And they'd much rather connect meaningfully uh, via communities and advocacy, like I said, rather than traditional ads. So. Um, yeah, thank you so much, guys, for joining today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here speaking about Gen Z and the impact. There's tons to cover. I think we run slightly over because there's just so much to get through. Uh, but I feel like a lot of questions have been answered. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have so many along. And stay tuned for future webinars as well. Thanks, guys. See you in the next one. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, but don't stop there. There is so much more coming from us. Remember to follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on and tell your friends too. And while you're at it, why not check out Bulbshare a little more? You can find us on social media, on bulbshare.com or on email at info at bulbshare.com. Stay tuned for more podcasts packed full of insights. Thank you.